0: Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School Hour. We are again, of course, in the book of Galatians. And I hope that as this happens, uh, as we go through this, my prayer is that we will be so saturated with the essential truths of the gospel that it won't be like, oh, here he goes again. And why does he have to say it so many times? But it will saturate our souls, that it will fill our hearts and fill our minds so that everything we look at is through the gospel Because um, I think I've said this several times before. I used to think the gospel was kind of the kindergarten and I'm done with that. And man, I'm in college now, so I'm I'm ready for the deep stuff. When the truth of the matter is, even the kindergarten things you learn, ABCs and that kind of thing, you always use that, don't you? And so you don't get to college and uh, you're, you're working on your PhD and something, and then you forget how to use your letters or what the... Uh, combinations of diphthongs and all of that phonics, Uh, all of those things would be. You're constantly using those things. You just don't think about them, but you're still using everything you learned when you were a little kid. And uh, the same thing is true when we come to the Bible. Everything needs to be through the eyes of the gospel. We don't set it aside. We don't say I'm too advanced for that. It's something that we need to As Alistair Begg says, we need to preach the cross to ourselves every single day. And we need to be aware of our sin. We need to be aware of the gulf that separated us from God that we could never attain. We need to be aware of the um, inadequacy of our own righteousness and our own works and the grace of God as he came to us, died on the cross for us, and how his spirit has given us life and we're a part of his family. And we need to think about that when we look at other people, when we look at society, when we look at the church, when we look at the Word of God, always through the lenses of the gospel. And so uh, Paul brings out something today. uh, Well, actually, uh, I I think he started in last week's lesson more of a personal, emotional, um, affectionate, reaching out to the Galatian people. In fact, he said, if you remember last week, in telling you the truth, have I become your enemy? Well, that's a hard thing when you do what's right and somebody turns on you because of that. When you tell them the truth and you actually are doing something that is good for them, but it causes them to turn on you. Well, now he explains a little bit of why that is happening. And we're looking in Galatians 4. 17 through 20. Now, uh, our introduction is this. The Judaizers postured themselves as really caring about the Galatians to the point of uh, the New King James Version uses the word courting or court, to court them. Think about what that means. Think about what that implies. If somebody, a young man is courting a young lady, he's trying to win her over and he goes above and beyond his normal means and maybe even what he's willing to do after he gets her. But uh, nonetheless, no price too high. I would swim any ocean, climb any mountain, cross any desert, you know, all of that type of thing. And uh, yet with the uh, Judaizers, we find out in these verses, they had ulterior motives, and so they're using the Galatians to advance their own agenda they're using it to tear down Paul and advance their own agenda and uh, we're going to see a verse in here that kind of gives you the their really uh, hidden motive and what they really wanted to do and it's it's kind of sad when you think about it sad for Paul because he sees it happening and sad for the Galatians because they're being used. They're being used. Verse 17 in chapter 4 says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing. Be zealous for the right things, zealous always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to uh, be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. I have doubts about you. What a what a terrible thing to say about people that you obviously love and are close to. I'm just not really sure about things. That's what Paul is expressing to them. And it's because they have obviously been misled. But notice how it says that they did it. They zealously, I mean, They are intense. The Judaizers are. And it's every waking moment. It's everything they have, every time they have an opportunity, press, 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 press. And they're trying to divide the Galatian believers from the apostle Paul. They don't want them to have anything to do with him. And they want him to, they want them to think he is a fraud and that he has misled them when the truth of the matter is that's what they are doing. So number one, notice that um, their concern, meaning the Judaizers, their concern, and I've got in parentheses, really their flattery was fake. And that's what we find in verse 17. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Now, you know, uh, one of the reasons so many marriages have trouble is because the courtship was fake. There was very little honesty in it. And uh, here's an old boy that his girlfriend that he wants to impress says, I'd like to go to the ballet. And he goes, oh, I would love to go to the ballet too. And so he, you know, Googles some things and reads up a little bit about ballet. He really doesn't like it. He really doesn't care that much for it but because it will win her over, man, he's willing to do it. And so now he knows just enough to be dangerous, just enough to talk a little bit, but he's really, it's kind of a snow job, isn't it? And so uh, they uh, do that and have a wonderful time. Well, at least she does. And uh, he's happy with the result, not that he likes the ballet. And then they get married. And then one day she says to him, man, I would love to go to the ballet again. Wasn't that fun? And then he comes out with, you got to be kidding me. I hated every minute of that. And now you've got trouble because of dishonesty. And there are times when people that are dating, they will pretend to like things. They will pretend to be a certain way because they think that's what the other person wants to hear. Well, it probably is what they want to hear and what they want to see problem is it's not real it's not genuine it's not lasting and the truth eventually comes out now this is what the judaizers are doing to the the galatian believers playing up to them courting them they are so zealous they are so attentive and they are so in tune with the galatian believers not like paul he left. He's somewhere else. He's with another group of people. But boy, these Judaizers, they come and they stay and they are intense. Well, really, what they're doing is putting on a full court press in this situation. And um, it's, well, let's put it this way it's fake. Did you know that the Bible really has a dim view of what we call flattery? In fact, it's always negative. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In other words, it tricks you. It traps you up. You can't keep it up forever. You're eventually going to uh, uh, expose yourself. Proverbs 28, 23. Listen to this. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters With the tongue. Now, that's not to say we're supposed to be rude and that we're supposed to constantly be negative and pointing out everybody's mistakes and their flaws and all of that. We affirm people where we can and we always try to be as positive as we possibly can. In fact, what we do, even if we're trying to correct them, needs to be done out of love, out of care, out of concern to better them, to help them. And these Judaizers are not doing that. Everything they do is just what we would call just empty flattery. And they don't really mean it. They don't really care that much about them. They've got this special agenda. And I want you to notice the bullet points that are under this, because this is something that you'll miss if you're not careful. The Judaizers wanted to isolate the Galatians from Paul and from the truth. See, the NIV translates uh, this verse that we looked at. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. They're just trying to win you over. And in order to do that, they feel like they have to crush the apostle Paul and everything that uh, he believes. In other words, you know, they're like a typical person who believes that Paul's success is their failure. Okay. And so in order to be successful, they've got to win the Galatians over and they've got to dispute and push Paul away. Now, when you think about uh, what is going on there, does that mean that they care for the Galatians? No, they just hate Paul and they hate Paul's doctrine, and they want to alienate these people. Just come on over to our side, and when they win them over, they'll move on to somebody else. And so it's a very, very, very sad situation. And I think that when it says that they want to alienate you, I think we have to consider the fact that the Judaizers really did not like having Gentiles in the church, or anything else. They wanted it to be exclusively Jewish. So convert or get out, convert or get out. And they know that especially when you talk about something like circumcision, that's painful. And a lot of people are going to say, well, if that's what it takes, I don't want in. Okay, good enough, good enough. We're we're glad to have you go out the door. We didn't want you really anyway. I think that is a big part of this. They were so Jewish, they really did not want gentiles in the in the fellowship at all what a terrible thing what a horrible thing to pretend they like you to pretend they care to pretend they're all for you but really what they are trying to do is to set you up so that you'll quit so that you will leave so that you'll go somewhere else so that's number 1 number 2 the consistency that they needed and by that i mean the galatians what they needed is found in verse 18. But it is good to be zealous. We ought to be zealous, but then he qualifies it in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. Now, do you remember Peter, the apostle? He would kind of uh, play around with everything so that when the Jews from Jerusalem weren't around, He was eating ham sandwiches with the Gentiles. But when the Jews from Jerusalem, the Judaizers came, then all of a sudden Peter is strictly kosher and keeping all of the traditions and kind of separating himself from the Gentiles. And you remember Paul said, I withstood him to the face on that. Okay? Now, notice the Galatians are doing the same thing that Peter did to them, except now they're doing it to Paul and they're separating from him and they are basing it on who's present. So they're zealous for one thing when certain people are present, zealous for another thing when other people are present. And so uh, I ask you the question on that, where's God? Where's the love for God? And where is consistency for the truth? Where is the filling and leadership of the Holy Spirit in all of this? Well, obviously, this is nothing but flesh. Now, we look underneath there again at the bullet points. Passion for God and his gospel. That is great. That is awesome. That's something that ought to always be there. However, second bullet point, it should be consistent and not dependent upon who is watching or present or even Preaching the truth. You know, so many times we have people that say, Well, you know, if I'm around certain people, I won't let them see the real me. I think a lot of people did that with my father in law because I've watched them over time now that he's gone. They don't live the way he taught them to live, they don't live the way that uh, he presented to them. But they sure played up to him while he was alive, and they sure acted like everything he said was life-changing till they didn't need it anymore because it was dependent upon a person. You know, that is a sign of carnality. What we do is we follow Christ and we follow him as revealed in his word, led and empowered by the Spirit of God, no matter who's around. And it doesn't matter whether it's somebody conservative or somebody liberal. We don't change. We walk with the Lord. It doesn't matter when we uh, are hanging around somebody that kind of has more um, libertarian ideas about things. If it's a conviction of your heart, you don't change. You don't accommodate anything else. You stay by what the Bible says. Now, we got to make sure we're doing what the Bible says. We're not talking about being a legalist, a consistent legalist all the time or a consistent liberal all the time. We're talking about being right. We're talking about being correctable, being teachable. We're talking about being obedient to what the scripture says, regardless of the pressure that may come one way or another. Now Again, don't hear me say be rigid and unteachable and uncorrectable, but that's got to be by the word of God, not just by the personality or persuasiveness or the argument of another person. Study to show yourself approved, Paul told Timothy, so that you can be a workman who does not need to be ashamed of his work, but you're rightly dividing the word of truth. Remember that? Rightly dividing was a tent maker's term, and Paul was a tent maker, and it means to cut it straight, follow the pattern. And so that's the way our life is, life is supposed to be. So truth is the issue, not presentation or personality. Truth is the issue. Well, I like the way that guy preaches. Well, a lot of people like the way heretics preach, but that's not where we're supposed to go. And sometimes you may hear somebody tell the truth and go, well, they weren't quite as entertaining as another person was. Not the issue. The issue is always, always, always truth. And how do we measure truth? Truth always by the Holy Scriptures. Now, the Corinthians had trouble with this, and uh, so do a lot of modern believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 13, Paul said to the Corinthians, Now I plead with you, brethren, they were saved, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by the house, uh, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, meaning Peter or I'm of Christ, those people who are going to be super spiritual, right? And Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so uh, you read that, and what's his point? His point is we should not be personality seekers. We should not be driven by who the most entertaining is or the person that we have the most affinity for. Are you going to like some preachers more than others? Absolutely. Are there going to be some preachers who relate to you more than others do? Of course, that always happens. But that's not the standard by which we judge. How would you like the preacher? Oh, I really liked him. That does not necessarily mean that he is of God, does it? And so uh, even when we evaluate a worship service, what'd you think of the service? Oh, I really enjoyed worship. Well, excuse me, but you're not the one we're worshiping. You're not the one we seek to please, it's God. There's an audience of one that all of us worship together and we are to please him in what we do. I know that sounds a little bit rude, But, I mean, that's just the truth. That's the way it is. And the Corinthian believers were getting all caught up in, some people said, man, that Peter, boy, he can sure preach a great sermon. Other people said, well, no, I kind of like Paul. And others said, well, you know, Apollos is the one that that really turns my crank. And then others would say, I just love Jesus, you know. And all of this is doing nothing but uh, uh, displaying selfish pride. And a division in the church, and Paul is saying, the truth of the matter is, you need to go to the one who died for you. You need to go to the one who really saves you. You need to go to the one who, uh, in whose name you were baptized. Right? This is always a problem. So, do you follow the Judaizers or do you follow Paul? No, you follow Christ, and you follow the truth of the gospel, and you honor Jesus Christ. You don't please Paul when he's there. And don't you get the idea with what he said? You're supposed to be zealous in all of this, but not just when I'm present. Apparently, the Galatians were kind of like the Corinthians, and let's be fair, like all of us, When a certain person is around, we act a certain way, say certain things, refrain from certain things, because we want that person's approval. And then when it changes, when the audience changes or the time changes, then all of a sudden we're a completely different person. That is a horrible thing. We ought to be always walking in unity. So it ought to be that whatever Graceway is on Sunday morning at 10.15, that's what every member of Graceway ought to be at school, We ought to be in our neighborhoods. We ought to be at our workplace. We ought to be in our homes, wherever we are, and whatever we're around, worshipers and followers of Christ, lovers of the word and lovers of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they're in our own family. Second Corinthians chapter 10, 10. Listen to what the Corinthians said about Paul. This may not be your impression of Paul, but this is what they said, and they were eyewitnesses or ear witnesses, I guess we would say to this. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence, it's weak, and his speech contemptible. In other words, for the Corinthians, they were so immature, it's not what was said, it's how it was said, and who said it. That's what carried the real weight for them. Brothers and sisters, that is something we must fight against. Truth is truth no matter who says it or how they say it. And we need to be plugged into the truth, excited about the truth, and living the truth. And truth needs to be the uh, issue. Not, well, boy, he writes a tough letter, but he sure is unimpressive when he's in the pulpit or something like that. that that's terrible. That's terrible that we do that. And yet that's kind of the way we are in our entertainment, television, media-driven society today. We go to a church and we say, I really worshiped. And what we really mean is they put on a good show today. You know, there's the old joke that uh, family's going home from church and the dad's driving the car and he says, oh, that was the most pitiful sermon I've ever heard. And then mom goes, yeah, and that choir was way, way, way out of tune. And their chords didn't gel or anything. And then the sister goes, yeah, and, and man, that soloist, man, she really, really was flat on some of those high notes. And then the little boy said, yeah, but you got to admit it wasn't bad for a quarter. I mean, you know, that's funny. And there's some truth to all of that kind of thing. But the major thing is that's not the way we evaluate worship. Worship is not a matter of, did you like it? I hope you do. Did you enjoy it? I hope you do. But that's not really what we're aiming for, is it? And we need to be unified in the fact that we are going after truth. And so it's not so much how it's said, even though we could all improve, we could all be better, but it's what is said that is the most important thing. Let's move on. Number three, Paul's genuine concern. I mean, th- this is something you can mark it down. Paul was not faking it. Paul was not playing to his audience. This is real. And look at verse 19, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Wow, what a what a way to say that. What a way to describe that. Okay my little children. What a tender expression of love. Now, Paul doesn't say that very often. He rarely uses it. But if that phrase sounds familiar, it's because the apostle John, the apostle of love, he uses it regularly and repeatedly. He'll use it in his gospel. He'll use it in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But Paul is using it here because it fits. You are my little precious children. I love you. I care about you. I'm concerned for you. I want to protect you. I want to feed you. I want to make sure that you are okay and that you are secure. And uh, so he is really speaking here and uh, telling them just how much he cares and how badly their deviation from truth, how badly that it hurts him. It matters to him. And it matters to the point, as he watches him go through it, he said, it's like giving birth. You ever been present when someone gives birth? My dad's generation sat in the waiting room, and I guess they passed out cigars, or, well, my dad never smoked, so he probably didn't, but that's, you know, kind of what you see in old television programs and movies, and they would pace until somebody came and said, it's a boy, and, you know, and then they would celebrate or anything. No, my generation, it was pretty much expected that Um, we would go into the delivery room. I went into the delivery room, and when Taylor was born, they had an actual labor room, and then you uh, took the woman over to the delivery room. I had to put on scrubs and a mask and all that kind of stuff and uh, go in there and see it. I uh, tell you the truth, after that experience, I didn't want to do it anymore. I mean, that, that, that was not pleasant at all. Sammy was in pain, and there's a lot that goes on. Uh, that it's just not uh, really a pleasant thing. But I was told in no uncertain terms that uh, I would be there for the other. So I did for the other two that came along. And I'm I'm glad I did, but nonetheless, I wouldn't want to do it again. And uh, you say, well, easy for you to say as a man. Yeah, you're right. I would not want to go through what women go through when they give uh, birth to a child. it's it's a terrible thing. It's a painful thing. And Paul is saying here that when he looked at the deviation of his little children, he said it's like going through labor pains again. In other words, we should not be apathetic when a professing believer falls away from the truth. We should not be just laissez-faire and say, oh, well free country, you can believe whatever you want to believe. It ought to bother us. It ought to cause us to pray with intensity. It ought to cause us to hurt and to grieve and to weep. And this is the way the apostle Paul would live his life. He really, really did care. He was never apathetic or nonchalant about any of this. In fact, I read in Romans 9, 1 through 4, he was even this way about the lost. And this is in Romans chapter 9, that great neglected chapter about the sovereignty of God. And there are some people who say, oh, well, God's going to save whomever he will. I don't really care. I'll just let him do it. Well, Paul wasn't like that. You need to be more like the apostle Paul. Romans 9, 1 through 4. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. You ever felt that way? Have you ever wept, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy, the psalmist says? When's the last time you wept over somebody's soul? When's the last time you cared? I had some ladies at First Baptist Chelsea that came to me, and they were all upset. And they met with me in my office. There were uh, three of them, I believe. And they were concerned. Why won't God save my husband? We pray for him and we want him to be saved. Why won't God save my husband? Each one of them had a lost husband that didn't come to church. And uh, as we were talking about it, I said, well, I have to ask you something. And with all due respect and no offense, do you really care about his soul? Or is it just that you get tired of coming to church by yourself? Is it just because it bothers you when you see other couples in church and uh, a man's got his arm around his wife and, oh, you wish your husband would come and could sit with you and put his arm around you and you could be in church together? Is, Is it because when you have to get up and get the kids ready, you have to do it all by yourself while he's snoring in the bedroom because he doesn't care? What's your real motivation and uh, it was amazing in all of my 28-year-old wisdom. Uh, it really struck a chord with them. And uh, they said, you know, to be honest, some of it's what you said. I said, well, see what happens if you ask God to give you a Romans 9 burden for your husband like Paul had for Israel, and let's, let's see what happens. Do You know, uh, we baptized all three of those men. It wasn't immediately, but it was within the next year or so. And I've always tried to think about that. What is my motive? See, as a pastor sometimes, I want to see people saved. I want to see people baptized. And it's sometimes hard not to keep the line straight with, because I want more tithers in the church, because I want more uh, uh, people in the seats here, because I want more resources to use so that we can do more, or do I really care about their souls? And I think that's where it has to happen. We've got to genuinely care. And Paul really did care about these people, about the state of their soul, about their walk with the Lord. And he said, I want Christ more perfectly formed in you. I want Christ formed in you. In other words, Christ to fill every aspect of your life. If you took your hand and had a glove, I wish I'd remembered to bring one, and you put your glove in the hand, but you kept your fist balled up like that, that glove is useless. And you won't be able to do anything because the fingers are empty. But it's when you put the thumb where the thumb goes and all the fingers where the fingers go, now the glove can actually do some things because it is empowered by your hand that fills every part of the glove. Do you see the point? Paul said, I want Christ to be formed in all of you, to empower and to fill every part of your life, not just some parts, not just Sunday morning and Wednesday night, not just at, at uh, before a meal when you pray or a daily devotion or anything. I don't mean to denigrate any of those things. It's just that there's more to it than all of that. Christ wants to fill all of your life and we just don't care. We don't have much of a burden about anything and we don't have much conviction about anything. We just blow In the wind, and then wonder why God isn't doing more things. Okay? Number four, let's finish up with Paul's desire. So I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have my doubts about you. That's a strange thing to say. What is he doubting? What does that mean in the original language? Uh, the Holman uh, translation, which is a Southern Baptist translation, by the way. And uh, I had a part of being in a focus group when that translation first came out. And here's the way it translates it. I think it makes it a little clearer. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. And, you know, there's something about a face-to-face meeting. You know, you can, uh, you know, reading even even the Bible is kind of like reading a text. You don't always know what the tone is. Is that more severe than I think? Or maybe is it easier than I actually think? And Paul said, if I could see your face, look into your eyes, hear your voice, and dialogue with you, then I would know how my tone ought to come across. But I think they capture it Uh, rightly when they say, because I don't know what to do about you. You see, he wanted to help and he wanted to fellowship with them and he wanted to be treasured and reassured. He wanted to be competent. He wanted their relationship to be a valuable and wonderful thing, not just a nonchalant acquaintance type thing, you're over there, I'm over here, and you believe this and I believe that, oh well, whatever will be, will be type of thing. Paul couldn't stand that. He cared and he felt for people very, very deeply, okay? So he wanted to be reassured and he wanted clarity in all of this. Let's come to the correct conclusion in the truth. And so Paul knew that the Galatian believers were being tricked. And they were also going to be hurt. They were being set up to be hurt by these people that they were following. Instead of loving, living, and trusting in the gospel and uh, the Lord of the gospel, they were unduly influenced by men. And false teachers seemed to be um, exceptionally Forceful in their personalities, novel and weird sometimes in their twisting of scripture and application of it. And they use people. They love to have things and to use people. And it ought to be the opposite. We ought to have things and love people like Paul did. Well, they didn't do that. And so we also need to pray and be concerned about those who are tricked? It's not just annoying to have Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come to your door. It ought to break our hearts that they believe what they believe and are devoid of the truth. It's not enough just to simply say, Oh, well, you know, they've kind of gone into a cult or a different denomination or something like that. It ought to bother us. Why did they feel the need to do that? And how could they abandon biblical truth to go into something that is so wrong? And we ought to be praying about that. So may God give us the heart of Christ as it was expressed in the heart of Paul. You see, when Paul said, I would be accursed if I could be for my brothers to come to know Jesus, what he was saying is, I would rather have God pour out all of his wrath and anger on me for their sake. Now, number one, that's not logical because it can't happen. But number two, it shows his heart. And why did he have that heart? Because what he expressed in Romans 9 is exactly what Jesus did when he was on the cross. Curse me, punish me, so that they can have a relationship with you. Oh, if God could give us that type of heart, do you think our witness might be more effective? Do you think our walk with God might be straighter? Do you think maybe our testimony might be more clear and more pure? And it all has to go back to Jesus, who he is and what he did for us. Let's never deviate from that for anything. Even for us, we don't deviate from the cross and from the gospel. Well, I thank you so much for your time today and hope this has been an encouragement to you. Teachers, God bless you as you teach your class. And for those of you who are watching this to keep up, good for you. I really, really appreciate that. And we will see you this next week. Thanks again, and uh, God bless.